Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense here in Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. We're located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive. We're in that great big beautiful town bank building. We also have an office in the village of Whitefish Bay, and that is just directly across from Winkies, Kitty Corner, from Sendex. Please feel free to stop in. And as we're approaching the winter months, boy, that really doesn't sound so great, does it? We also have an office in Bonita Springs, Florida, and uh, you can stop in and see me there for sure. My guest today is Chip Duncan, and this is one of those shows where um, it's it's so much fun to, for me because Chip is a really good friend. He is a filmmaker, an author. He's a photographer. He's um, president of the Duncan Entertainment Group. He's right here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, right downtown. And um, he is so diverse and has so many things always going on. Um, and every time I sit down and talk with him, I leave so movi- motivated in so many different ways. And if you've had a chance to stop out at our Pewaukee, office. I had the um, wonderful opportunity with my granddaughter Taylor in January of this year to go with Chip to Africa. And we can talk a little bit about that because we are going to talk about an exhibit that he has going on right now at the Charles Alice Museum, Inspiring Change with Chip Duncan and Mohammed Amen. And so today we're going to cover a little bit about what really motivates Chip, which is really very exciting and we're going to talk about um, some of his photography as a filmmaker and also as an author we are also going to talk about going um, into Christie's and about art and one of the things that I've been mentioning to Chip is that we have I have so many clients that have beautiful collections of art and art pieces and as we're doing estate planning it's what do we do with those art pieces who do they trust how can they pass that piece of art down to family members? Do they give it to a museum? Do the children prepare to sell it? All kinds of good things. So we're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to introduce my dear friend, Chip Duncan. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker. My dear friend and guest today is Chip Duncan, and uh, he is the president of the Duncan Entertainment Group. He is just an amazing, amazing guy to know. And so, Chip, welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having me. We have spent so much time um, just talking about various things in our community and what you do. Just give my audience um, a little bit of insight into Chip Duncan. Wow. Well, uh, let's stick to the, I'll, I'll just tell you about the professional side because I don't want to bore people with my personal life. But um, I would say, you know, the, the simplest way to look at us is we are primarily a documentary production company that has our, our hand in a whole lot of other kinds of entertainment. But we've been based here in the city of Milwaukee since 1985. I've had a, a a staff that includes some remarkable people, Bob Huck and Theron Pfeiffer and Susan Templin and all kinds of great people have worked with us over the years. 
but we we've in some ways done something that everybody said was not possible, which is have a sustainable film organization in the city of Milwaukee. Um, when I came into the industry, you had to live on one of the two coasts, and and that's not really the case. It wasn't the case then. It's certainly not the case now. Um, but we've even though we've been primarily documentary film, we have done a number of feature films. I've worked a lot on the financial side of, of theater, mostly Broadway theater. And then more recently in the last uh, 10 years or so, we've really branched out extensively into still photography, which was largely an outgrowth of a volunteer work I was doing for different humanitarian groups around the world. So I've had the privilege now of working in about 45 countries around the world. Um, I kind of went from the the high-end uh, Discovery Channel projects doing, uh, you know, living in Ritz-Carlton's to now spending almost all of my international time uh, focused on crisis zones, refugee camps, slums, and really in terms of the meaning part of what I do, it's it's much, much more fulfilling. And so, um, so generally speaking, a broad range of media that um, that is sustained by long-form documentaries. Chip, why are documentaries so important? And I've always loved film, and I've sat for, I don't know, about eight years now on the Milwaukee Film Board, and I'm always fascinated by how much I don't know and how I can see myself in some of those films and, and people, you know, just in general life. But why is why is what you do um, detailing in film some of the things that are going on in the world? Why does that make why does it make you so happy to do it as well? Well, I, I've, I'm I'm obviously a big believer in news in journalism and and uh, especially in the current environment um, where where journalists in some places are perceived as the enemy of the people that's not the world I live in I look at at the journalistic community the documentary film community as people who are deeply committed to trying to tell the truth find the truth pursue the truth and we've been doing that uh, I've been doing it my entire professional life and as a company now for over 30 years so I've, I moved from news and doing short form into long form. And the reason I, I made that decision was only because I wanted to go deeper and deeper into subject matter. So, <clears throat> excuse me, to give you a little background, um, we've done a lot of work in public television, which is largely grant-financed programming. And then we've also worked with investor-driven f- filmmaking. But the the overall goal has been the same, which is to entertain and to educate and to tell the truth to the best of our ability. Uh, and, and so we've done things as diverse as a three-part series called the Reagan Presidency, which was for aired nationwide on public television and then in about 45 other countries around the world, to um, our most recent release was a, a, a film about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, which was more biographical, but also delved heavily into mythology and and how the imaginative process works. And that was on national public television last year, 2017. And then our current film is investor financed, and it's a, a project that looks at first-year medical students as they dissect the human body. So they're learning gross anatomy, and we worked with the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine on the film. They provided the access, and we followed their students and their 
uh, academic team through this process of learning what it means to be a doctor and even more importantly what it what it means to be a human being so so there is a, a hopefully in all of our films an element of entertainment that grabs the viewer and holds their attention for an hour hour and a half so that it's a meaningful experience for them but also a, a strong desire to educate and to pursue the truth in, in, in whatever way we can find it. So I've been very blessed to have already already have seen the screen screening of that film. And, you know, Chip, it was amazing to me to talk with you to really understand how long and how complicated it is to actually make a film of that magnitude and that we were able to show it to our clients and we had people of a variety of different ages and everyone was spellbound by it. Everyone. And it was really fun. And can you talk about what does a filmmaker do? I mean, you know, we, we go, so they can go and see that film actually October 20th, October 20th. It's, uh, I guess we would call it the world premiere is in Milwaukee on October 20th at the Milwaukee film festival. And then it will be released in New York the following week and then Los Angeles in mid-November. Do you know which theater it's going to be at? Is it at? I believe it's at the Oriental. At the Oriental. And check, so, check your local list. Yes. So that's October 20th at the Oriental. And that will be an amazing opportunity for you to see it. But talk a little bit about how, how the process works to actually make a film. Well, in, in the specific to documentary films, which is our, our strength, um, we begin a project first by looking at has anyone else touched this subject? Is this, you know, are we duplicating efforts? And, and assuming we're not, um, we'll go through the process of trying to find the right venue for distribution and the right mechanism for fundraising. So it may be a grant finance project that winds up on public television, or it may be a for-profit project that winds up in theaters and on Netflix or Showtime or HBO. So we try to make all of those determinations in advance. Otherwise, our business model is not sustainable. But once we've concluded how to pursue the film, then the, the way we typically do it is to do a lot of research, come up with a, at least a modest treatment of what we think the story looks like. How do we get from point A to point B? And then we start usually a, a documentation process. And, and I guess the reason we would call them documentaries is that's literally what we're doing. We're finding our interview subjects and we're trying to figure out how to visualize what they're saying. So if it was a nonfiction book, like an Eric Larson book, for example, um, you don't have to have the visual component to go with it. Um, but in our case, we have to have a way to put pictures to whatever people are, are, are articulating. So if it's a medical student and they're expressing their fear or their trepidation about doing uh, dissection for the first time, we have to have pictures that show what they're talking about. So in the case of the first patient, uh, debuts here on October 20th, we spent uh, roughly, I would say, about 10 weeks in production. Uh, we spent more than a year in pre-production. But once we were in production, it was about 10 weeks. And then the editing and writing process is, for me at least, the, the longest and the toughest part of the of the filmmaking process. So, And you're traveling. You're going there. You're oh, on yeah. site. We're on site. Uh, you know, it's interesting because Mayo Clinic School of Medicine was 
the the location where we produced this film, they gave us the access point and and worked with us on all of the permissions and the releases, and they did an extraordinary uh, job collaborating with us. But uh, my initial hope was, gosh, it'd be nice to make this film in Milwaukee, and and yeah. we didn't. Um, and for the most part, even though we're based here in the city, almost every film we do takes place in some other part of the world. So I, I am traveling a lot. Um, but then once we get to the writing and post-production editing process, I'm I'm here in the edit suite in a sound room uh, working with a composer, trying to make it uh, the best experience possible for the viewer. Um, I'm not going to give away the film. You couldn't possibly. There's so many components to it. But I remember um, wondering, and I actually had an opportunity when I was younger to be in some autopsies and things like that. So I wasn't too freaked out about seeing the the body. But what just captivated me was watching the students at the very beginning of the film and as they went through the entire body. And I remember when they turned the body over and they started working on the hands. Mm-hmm. The hands really moved them a lot. And um, it just, for me, the film made me think about things I hadn't thought about before. And I think that's really powerful is when you learn something, but then you move to another level of your own growth. Mm-hmm. Which, well, it, you know, it's interesting because in the documentation process, when we were interviewing students, we the film can only go where they take it. So if, if a student doesn't mention something, I can't necessarily take the film there unless I want to bring in a narrator, which in this case I did not. So the film really follows the student's journey. And when we went into the process, our hope was that they would help us understand what it means to be a doctor. And if you have not done gross anatomy, which is the dissection of the human body, if you have not done that, you're never going to be able to treat your patient. No. They're, they're for, the reason the film is called The First Patient is every medical student, their first patient is dead. It's a cadaver, and that's where they learn. And, and that learning process can go on for the entire arc of their career if they happen to be a surgeon. They're working on uh, a knee or a head or some part of the body in the anatomy lab to make sure that their technique is good. And, and so we knew that the students would help us understand what it means to be a doctor. What we didn't know, but we hoped – was that they would also take us into the world of what does it mean to be a human being? Mm-hmm. Because under our skin, we are all exactly the same. And so the external that we present to the world, that's where a lot of our conflict comes from. Um, whatever that might be, that could be around money, that could be around race, that could be around gender, whatever conflicts we have tend to be more external. And just as we are when we're in a meditative process or a prayer process or some kind of self-reflection, the same thing happens in the anatomy lab. Once the skin is gone, we're all exactly mm-hmm. the same. And so what does it mean to be a human it became the, the general and overall theme of this film. And I think it's why the film will resonate so much for so many people. Well, for those um, individuals that are out there that are physicians, it's really amazing to see this. And when we were able to um, do this for our clients, we had many doctors there. And everyone came back and said, I remember my first patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember my first patient. They consider um, anatomy the rite of passage. Like if you can, if you can get through this class, you will be a doctor. 
you'll mm-hmm. be able to succeed at your goal. Um, if you can't, then the odds are you maybe just picked the wrong profession. Mm-hmm. My guest today is Chip Duncan. He is a filmmaker, an author, a photographer with the Duncan Entertainment Group right downtown. And we are going to take a, cri- a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk to Chip Duncan, the author. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. My guest today is Chip Duncan, who is a filmmaker, an author, a photographer. He is the president of the Duncan Entertainment Group. He's also a very dear friend of mine. So today is a a really special opportunity for me to interview him and to share him with you all (laughs) and all the wonderful things that he does. And we'll talk about some of the other things that he's doing in terms of climate. And there's just it's I'm never surprised when I sit down and um, talk with him as to something new that he is really looking at. But, you know, one of the things I also want to say that if you're listening to this interview and if you'd like to share it with someone, you can go to ellenbecker.com, go to, um, that's our website, and go to radio shows and click on radio shows and you will be able to see the Money Sense and Chip, the entire uh, show will be taped and you can share that very easily with anyone that you might like. So Chip, we talked about Chip the filmmaker and now there's Chip Duncan the author. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and I know one of the things from traveling with you and everything and your group is that you document, document, document. You're an avid um, writer but you you also journal. You're an avid journalist. I, I journal. journal. I, I I use my photography to to uh, journal in a lot of ways as well. So, I I'm a person who majored in English at the University of Wisconsin Madison at a time when everybody said, "Oh, you'll never make it as a writer. Um, there is no market, etc." And and unless you go into academia, it, it just won't work. And and to a certain extent, I believe that. I don't now, but I did then. And so I I complemented my English background with communications and then launched a career as a filmmaker, but still held on to this desire to write. Um, and so in the, in the past 10 years or so, I've published three, um, well now four books, I guess, um, one self-published and, and three with major publishers. And they're all very, very different. Um, the, the first book was a biography on C.S. Lewis in 2002. Then I authored a book in 2009 uh, called Enough to Go Around that looked at the humanitarian projects that I had been involved in. So it covered work I'd done in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and and in Darfur, Sudan, which is, I was there during... An amazing, uh, beautiful I, book with photographs. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, it, well, I, I, thank you for saying it's beautiful, but it is a, <laughs> a book that includes photographs. Um, and it was interesting because that was a book I submitted to the publishers as a manuscript, and then they found out I had the photos, and then they decided to release it as more of a coffee table style book, which was terrific. Um, but I'd all my life I'd held out this desire to uh, to be a fiction writer. To I, I'd always thought when I was young that I would be a novelist. So last year, 2017, I released my first book of fiction. It's a short story collection called uh, Half a Reason to Die. It was released nationally through a publisher out of New York called Select Books. And I'm currently now working on a new fiction collection, which will be out next year, um, 
I'm not sharing the title yet, but it's uh, three novellas. So I, I continue, in addition to the filmmaking or the just general business work that I do or the photography, I, I am uh, more and more devoting a lot of my free time to writing fiction. And with all the travel that you do, if I remember correctly, many of the stories that I read in there have some connection to you in some way, some experience. or So you're really writing from your heart and you're writing from your life story. Well, the the thing that you learn in the academic world when you're starting, when you want to be a writer and you're in high school or college, they all say, you know, write from your experience. And I think maybe one of the reasons it took me 40 years to come back to fiction is that I was going out and getting the experience. And so the book you're referencing, Half a Reason to Die, that that is really a collection of eight short stories all based on real life incidents in my life where I felt that the beginning of the story um, was fascinating and, and interesting enough to start a, a, a fiction collection on. But then all of the endings became fictionalized because they were all incidents where I didn't feel like I experienced the whole story, <laughs> but they were captivating enough to say, okay, I'll start with the truth, the real life <laughs> events, and then I'll expand into fiction. Um, the new collection, which I'm almost done with, is entirely fiction. Um, and it's it's been interesting because uh, any of your listeners who might write, I I moved from first person to third person in terms of the writing style. And, and I'm, I, I didn't know this because I hadn't published fiction before, but um, first person seemed like the right way to go for my first book. And now I'm learning so many people say it's a harder way to go. It's, it's much tougher. And I, I think now that I'm almost done with the new collection, I understand why. Because you can, you can create an omniscient voice in the third person. You can go into the thoughts of, uh, of your characters in a much more um, profound way. So I'm, I'm enjoying both. But uh, it, is, it is interesting at this point in time. I, publishers would say, oh, you know, we don't, you know, f- from a financial perspective, do we really want to make an investment in a 60-year-old fiction writer? Because, you know, they're in business to make money. And they're probably thinking I have a short arc as a fiction <laughs> writer. But, but the truth is I, I'm – I write fairly quickly. I write on airplanes. Um, I tr- because I travel so much, I'm the guy that you see sitting, you know, with the laptop open, and and uh, the time passes so quickly because if I'm on a flight to L.A. or a flight to London or something, I'm banging out a lot of writing while I'm on the planes. Are you writing to um, because you you love it, or do you have a goal in mind? I know that. I was very touched by the stories, and many of them made me, particularly there's three of them in there that just made me really think to step back and go, wow, how would I have felt in that situation? Well, there, there, that's a good question. Is there a goal in mind? I'm, I'm generally writing from a passion perspective. I'm doing it because I feel like I have no choice. I, ha- I have to get these ideas on paper, and certainly – from a financial perspective, um, on the one hand, we're very sustainable and, and doing well as a film production company. But at this point, if I were ha- if I had to rely on my writing to make a living, <laughs> no, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be I'd be working at another profession. Um, but there is a, there is a lot in the first book, Half a Reason to Die. There's a lot in there that is intended to, as you 
suggested was the case for you to make the reader think, what would I do in this situation? So one of the stories, for example, deals with euthanasia. Mm-hmm. Why would we, or what would we do if we were faced with that same situation where do you, do you just stand back and watch someone die or do you help facilitate their death? And that's something that we've grappled with as a society here in the U.S., uh, largely around the hospice world. But when do when does it become uh, ethically and morally viable for you as an observer to facilitate someone else's death or to simply stay out of it and, and put it in the hands of whatever higher power you might consider? Um, and those are the kinds of moral dilemmas that exist in this in this collection of short stories pretty much across the board. Um, whether it's dealing with uh, – one story deals with a, a dysfunctional family. One deals with a, a, the life of a homeless person. But hopefully the reader will come in and say, yeah, if I'm in that situation, if I put myself in that world, then what choices do I make? And and so in that sense, it's, it's beyond just my passion for writing but goes into more what I'm aligned with in terms of photography or film, which is that there's a purpose for this work. And the purpose may be, and hopefully is, to bring some kind of meaning to the person who's reading it or watching it or listening to it so that they come away enriched. And that's, I think, the best cinema that we have, the best documentaries we have, the best songs that we have, the best stories are about that. There are things that make you stand back. And it doesn't matter. It could be a comedy. It could be a tragedy. I mean, Shakespeare did it in all of his various forms, which is, you know, when you watch Romeo and Juliet, it informs the way you love, you know, and, and, and I think that's the, the best media that we have, the best uh, stories that we bring to, you know, to our families and our friends. That's what they do. They make you, they put you in that position. I remember this many, many years ago now when I was talking to one of my um, very good friends and I had just bought a camera and I was going to um, do some photography and really had no experience or background. And um, I remember her saying, oh, my goodness, you've got to meet my friendship. And so she arranged it and I called you and went over to your studio and I remember that that was Chip, the photographer, mm-hmm. that I got to know. And I remember walking into your gallery, and you had the gallery set up, and you had your pictures, and they were um, from Peru and Afghanistan. You had a, a, a kaleidoscope of mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. types of photographs. And I remember walking around the room and you explained. You, you knew every place that you'd been. You'd talk to these people. I was so touched that what you do is you go back – and so you take a picture of someone and you actually take a photograph with you the following year and give them a photograph of themselves. And I could only imagine because they've never seen themselves, maybe mm-hmm. not in a mirror, maybe in a pool of water. I mean, these were a lot of country people, very poor people. And I was so touched. And I remember walking, somebody came in to talk to you and I walked through the whole gallery again and what I realized, and it just turned my life upside down, was that I could see myself in every one of those people. I could see a part of me, if it was a mother with a child, if it was an aging person. Um, the one thing that still is remarkable to me is how I fall in love with these faces, <clears throat> 
that have wrinkles and crinkles and and stories all over them. And I look in the mirror at myself and I go, no, 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 I don't want that. (laughs) But yet, you know, it's those beautiful, um, beautiful faces and that aging process that is so wonderful. And as I was talking to you now about being a filmmaker, being an author, what really becomes clear to me in all of your work is the way that you capture what you do, that someone can just step into it and feel it. Because I always say you're never alive. You're only alive as much as you feel. When you can walk past a photograph or you can read a short story or you can see a film and you can hear feel your heart beating or your brain going, you know that you've really been touched by something magical. Well, yes, I, I totally agree with you. And, and there's there's... A dilemma that I've faced with colleagues and friends for a long time, which is which one of these people are you? Are you a photographer? Are you a filmmaker? Are you a poet? Are you, you know, what, what hat are you wearing? And to me, they all come down to story. And, and yes. I think all of us are now realizing more and more that story is what drives us. It's what inspires us. So the, your story, for example, inspires me. And, and I think that the the common denominator between the 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 documentaries the theater the the um feature films the writing the the photography all of it the common denominator is this kind of desire to show truth and and not judge i mean just yes. to show the humanity of who we are and you know we live in a world that is so filled with controversy and judgment and and none of us are without challenges. None of us are, are perfect. And so um, one of the things I like about the, the current show at the Charles Alice Museum, there's a photography show there now. that Which is he, where they can see your work? Yeah, anybody can, between now and the end of October, Charles Alice Museum, downtown Milwaukee, they can see the photography. And we combined a lot of my images with the well-known African photographer, Mohammed Amin. And in bringing them together, you start to see that Mo. Amin was doing a lot of the same kinds of things with his camera that I'm doing with mine, which is to, first of all, it involves showing up. That sounds like a strange concept, but I had a friend say, well, couldn't anybody have taken this photo? I'm like, what? Yes, they could have, but first they would have had to fly to Nairobi, then get on a small plane, fly to the uh, Losaba Conservancy, build the relationships that are required to create the intimacy that allows the photo to take place. So the mechanics of the of the image making are one thing but the intimacy that comes through the photos is something else that isn't necessarily about setting your aperture or having the fastest lens Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's the question that you alluded to in your introduction to this section which is what is it that we're trying to communicate and how are we doing it with a camera so there's this idea that we're taking a picture and i resist the word take Right at the, right at the beginning, it implies that the subject is somehow being taken advantage of, and so oh, like you're stealing it. Like you're stealing it, yeah. That it doesn't belong to them; it somehow mm-hmm. now belongs to you. And so, a lot of the Aboriginal cultures around the world are deeply sensitive to that idea that there's here's another European or Amer- North American photographer coming in to take something, and and my feeling's always been it's an exchange. We're both mm-hmm. in this together, and. Every opportunity I get to return that image to the person who's featured within it, 
I take that opportunity. I will go back to Peru or back to Pakistan or whatever locations, or I'll send the images back through an intermediary so that the 5 by 7 or the 8 by 10 photo that I um, have created for them now is back in their hands. And it's, it creates a much more level playing field, at least in terms of whatever karma we want to bring to that situation. And I find it really deeply important that those people are, that, you know, that, that we ask their permission before, before we begin the exchange. Mm-hmm. Like, if you really want to, especially in the developing world or even more specifically in a crisis zone or a slum, if, if you want to irritate people, take your camera out and don't ask and you're just going to irritate the right. heck out of someone. So, so I always try and just keep my cameras in the background until I've built a relationship. And it's so obvious because you see it in the photographs that you take. I hope, wonderful. I hope so we're going to take case. a quick break. And then we are going to, I'm going to introduce Chip Duncan, the photographer. And uh, also Chip mentioned that you can go see the, um, the photography of Chip Duncan and Mohammed Amen, which is inspiring change. And um, this is the first time that Mo. Hamid Armin has had any work published anywhere in the world. And this is in combination with you because you have created such an amazing um, relationship. But also, this is based on the song um, We Are the World. We Are the World. Yeah. And to give people a frame of where what this is about, maybe just quickly before we take our break. Well, Mohammed Amin was he's, he passed away in 96 but he was considered one of the greatest photographers in african history and it were it was mo's images of the famine in ethiopia in 1984-85 that were seen by bob geldof helped launch live aid that then came across the ocean to harry belafonte who then initiated we are the world and harry then brought in michael jackson lionel richie quincy jones uh, Ken Craig and a number of great people who who then put together We Are the World. We Are the World is, in my opinion, one of the greatest acts of philanthropy in global history. $63 million were raised in the first year, and 100% of that funding went back to Africa. So uh, if you think about can a photographer or an artist inspire change, the answer is yes, and you don't have to look any further than Mohammed Amin to see how remarkable uh, it is that uh, just one person's commitment to telling the truth can result in in profound change. So you can go and see that at the Charles Alice Art Museum, Thursday, May 10th through Sunday, October 21st. Um, it's absolutely wonderful. Some of Chip's books are there. There's some films there that you can also see. Um, it is truly, truly, absolutely amazing. And with that, we're going to take a break. Right. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. My guest today is Chip Duncan, and we've covered it that he's a filmmaker and author. We've touched a little bit on photography, but I have to tell you that when I went to Canada, to Canada, when I went to um, Africa this year and, uh, and Ethiopia and then ended up in the Oma Valley, um, I remember Chip saying, which really caught my attention, he said, we're going to go to places nobody has ever gone. And I went, that's for me. And what I really should have thought about, which I love the trip, was that if we're going to places where nobody's been, there's no roads, there's no bathrooms, (laughs) the food, um, water, no showers, and 
it was probably one of the most rigorous, most beautiful opportunities I've ever had. First of all, I spent it with my granddaughter, Taylor, who was 21 at that time. And uh, and I met the most inspiring people. And I saw a piece of the world that I could have never experienced. And I also have the most memorable photographs from that. But watching you, Chip, I learned so much watching how you create that relationship And one of the most beautiful things that happened to me is as I was watching Chip with his relationship, I created a relationship with the chief's wife. Mm -hmm. And when I left there, she came and gave me her necklace and said, promise me you'll never forget me. And I have it in, you know, I have it in a beautiful frame. And it's those types of experiences that unless you go there, you never have them, and that's right. what you do. That's what you do. Well, I, I thank you for saying that. I I do um, try as much as possible to go to parts of the world that are maybe a little bit less explored or a little bit, um, at least for me, more interesting than than some of the European capitals that I love exploring. But if if you gave me the the option, I'd probably pick a remote part of Africa, South Asia, South America, um, in part because the, the people are so genuine and their lifestyles are so interesting to me. And the trip that you're referencing that we did together, we were able to spend quite a bit of time with um, a, a group in very rural Kenya uh, that happened to be Maasai. Uh, there are some Samburu people living there as well. But it, it was an opportunity to move deeply into their culture to see how they live and how what they value and and uh, how their families operate and what they do for a living, what they do for sustaining their own livelihoods. Um, but then once we moved into Ethiopia, it gets even more remote. And in some respects, I tell people when they say, "What what is your favorite country?" I, I tell them Ethiopia. And in some respects, it's it's because it's not as developed. It's so you you really can see what how people might have been living 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 150 years ago. Um, having said that, Ethiopia is also changing dramatically and has the highest growth rate on earth today. So we, we think 3% is good. They're at 9%. So, so Ethiopia has now become this land of extraordinary contrast between the skyscrapers of Addis Ababa and the remote uh, sites, such some of which you were in in the Omo Valley or Lalabella or the mm. whole Tigrayan region in the north where you can um, you know, just be on a dirt road forever and encountering just the most uh, basic the life. Churches. Yeah, the rock churches. The rock churches. Um, absolutely amazing. And uh, but you're, you know, I I'm, thank you for telling me that you learned something by watching me. But I also watched you and and other members of our group learn how to engage and how to use their cameras in those locations as well, so that um, you build that relationship. You're, you were talking about the chief's wife uh, with the Maasai, but you built that relationship, and then the photography takes on a whole different life yes. because you've you've taken the time to become friends, to see what's important to her, for her to see what's important to you. And if you never even 
create the photograph, that's fine. The right. photograph is of much less consequence than that interaction that you've just had. I remember with the little children, because it was hard to figure that out, and I came up with my own thing of squeezing their hand three times, I love you. Pretty soon they're repeating it, I love you. And then you got the smiles right. on their right. faces. It was amazing. Well, and this this goes maybe to a, a slightly deeper, and some people might even say spiritual uh, connection that is made there, but the this, the title of your show, Money Sense, you know this because you work in this field, but money has energy. And and how we define what that is doesn't necessarily have to be about having a, a currency that is related to a bank. It, it can right. literally be the kind of of emotional and, and, and spiritual exchange that we have with someone. We're still, it's still an exchange. You know, we tend to call it the way we operate in the world, we tend to use the term money, but this is about creating a different kind of wealth, a wealth that comes from experience, that comes from love, that comes from compassion. And I know that you, I've seen you in those environments and you walk in with that. Your heart is open when you get there. So it's not about exploiting any resource other than friendship and community and, and compassion and love. And that's what you left behind. And that's, I mean, those people were enriched by knowing you, and you were enriched by knowing them. And it's interesting that we even use words like enriched because <laughs> it's an emotional enrichment, and it's a different kind of exchange. But um, that's the beauty that I think you've brought to your clients, but to your, you know, to the way you're choosing to live your life too. It's 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 finding the wealth of experience and the wealth. It comes from those kinds of interactions. So, Chip, I'm going to abandon our idea of talking about art and just get you back on because we've <laughs> only got about a minute and a half left, and even we can't cover it that quickly. There's so much to talk about um, auction and experiences, so I know that we'll get you back on and talk about that. So with the little bit of time we have left, um, you've got some projects going, but what what do you want to say to my listeners? What do you want to say to them about the work that you're doing? Climate, you're, you're doing an amazing thing. And I know you're always a talking about helping people to be present, to make a difference, to be the difference. Well, I do think that's, that is the most important message I can impart as it relates to the work we do. Um, we operate like social entrepreneurs, Meaning we always place value on a, 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 a kind of a, a number of things, not just money. Money is a part of it because you need to be sustainable. But as I was talking about with the way you were integrating into Kenya and Ethiopia, how we enrich the lives of the people around us becomes incredibly important. And in, in my case, um, I, I think we're trying to do that through art. We're trying to do it through story. We're trying to do it by sharing our pursuit of the truth with the people who come to watch our films or who come to uh, you know listen to the work that we create. And so it's it's all part of one thing. And and to be sustainable is incredibly important. Um, but at the same time, to en- to try and enrich the lives of others around you through the art or the or the documentaries or the music that you're creating, I think that's what's important. So um, I'm just going to s- 
jump in here. I haven't talked to you about this, but I know that you do a lot of speaking all over the country. And you do it at Rotaries, and you do it at a variety of different places on climate control. You're working Mm -hmm. on that, inspiring change. So if there are people out there that would like to bring you in for a keynote speak, would like you to come into their corporation, um, I can tell you that Chip has talked to my clients, and, um, and he is just truly a a guided speaker um, through your life, through your experience, through your love of what you do. And so, again, my guest today is Chip Duncan, filmmaker, author, photographer at the Duncan Entertainment Group, one of my dearest and best friends. And as always, I hope that I've made a difference in your personal and your financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. You have a great weekend.